Please remain standing for the reading of God's holy and errant word. This morning's scripture reading is from Exodus chapter 20. It will be on page 61 of your Blue Pew Bibles. Exodus chapter 20, verse 1 through 11. Again, this is on page 61 of your Blue Pew Bibles. Hear now the word of the Lord. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let me pray for us once more. Father, we thank you for the word and now we ask for the Spirit to come to give us understanding, that you might be glorified in the preaching of your word, and that your people might be encouraged and built up. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've been working our way through the book of Exodus, and we have now arrived at Mount Sinai. We are now ready to hear from God as he gives his law to his people. And I wonder, I'm not surprised, if some of you are feeling a bit apprehensive this morning, having sat down in your pew only to discover that you're going to have the Ten Commandments preached to you. Well, don't worry, it's only going to be the first four today, so not the whole thing. Uh, we'll save the second half for next week. But one could argue that these four are uh, the hardest to keep and, and really the most out of step with today's world. I think it's safe to say that if you told someone today that you're going to listen to someone preach the law to you, they would probably cringe. They'll say that that sounds either boring or very uncomfortable, as in shame-inducing. They'll worry that, that the preacher is trying to manipulate or, or guilt-trip them to conform to some standard of behavior. You're going to preach a law to me? Well, let's be honest. When we hear the word law, the words that immediately pop up in our head are not my delight, my meditation, sweeter than honey to my lips, 
a lamp unto my feet. And yet, friends, those are the very descriptions the psalmist would use in Psalm 119 to praise the goodness and greatness of the law. If you told the psalmist that he was going to hear a sermon on the Ten Commandments, he would be jumping for joy. He would be here like 30 minutes early, just kind of getting ready and chomping at the bit. And you heard that in the passage that we read earlier this morning for the call to worship. Well, just listen again to Psalm 119, verses 47 to 48. For I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I lift up my hands towards your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. Let's be honest, that that sounds quite foreign to us. I mean, I, I really wish I felt that way about the Ten Commandments, but I I don't. I I don't think I could honestly say I love the law. Now, I could could totally say I love the gospel, right? I love the good news of what Christ has accomplished for us in his death and resurrection. I have no trouble in saying the gospel is my delight, but the Old Testament law I mean, didn't, you know, the gospel free me from all that? Free me from the Mosaic law? Didn't Jesus, like, fulfill the whole thing for us? Isn't the church under an entirely different covenant? We're the new covenant people of God. So is it even appropriate for us to speak so positively and and lovingly about the law? Well, friends, that is the big question that we need to tackle this morning. How should Christians today see and respond to the Old Testament law, particularly the Ten Commandments? I'm not surprised if many of us see the law, the Ten Commandments, as rather negative. We're so glad we are born and saved on this side of the resurrection. You know, we're so thankful to be part of the New Testament people of God under the gospel and not part of the Old Testament people of God who were under the law. Well, my aim this morning is to demonstrate, is to demonstrate to you from the scriptures that the law, no matter how, what perception you have of it coming in this morning, I want you to see that the law is not a burden for people to be freed from, and it's not a holy standard for us to achieve. I'm going to argue instead that the law is a blessing from God for those who are redeemed. It's God's good gift to his people. That's going to be our our thesis this morning. And to see this reality, to, to, to see this, you have to understand a very important, a very basic but important principle of interpreting Scripture, and that is you always have to read your text in context. And that means what you probably shouldn't be doing is you shouldn't export the Ten Commandments and carve it onto a monument or, you know, paint it on a fresco in a courthouse because when you do that, you are bound to misinterpret and misapply the commandments if you start reading them out of context. Because read out of context, it might reinforce this perceived antipathy between law and grace as if those two are, are just mutually exclusive concepts. But I think our text proves otherwise. Did you notice? Did you notice when, when, when the passage was read how the giving of the law was preceded by the giving of grace? Did you pick up on that? The giving of the law 
was preceded by the giving of grace. Look back with me at verses 1 to 2. Chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So before you get to verse 3, before God gives the law, he first reminds his people who he is and what he has done for them. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. Remember, that's the covenantal name of God. That name is associated with a covenant that he made with their forefathers, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this sovereign gracious God redeemed them from the land of Egypt back earlier in chapter 14. And so you've got to read this in the context of the book of Exodus. So well before the law was given to Israel here in chapter 20, their redemption had already been accomplished and a covenantal relationship with God had already been established. You see, it would be a very different scenario if God gave Israel the law while they were still in the house of slavery. And if he said, okay, here are my commandments. If you keep them, then I will redeem you and I will make you into my covenant people. That's how we often interpret it. We we think of it in that way. We assume that law-keeping was a condition that was foisted upon Israel, and we tell ourselves, oh man, we're so thankful to be under the new covenant, which is all about grace instead of law. But that's a false picture of the old covenant and of the law in particular. Grace preceded the giving of the law. What we see in Scripture is God graciously entering into a covenant with a very undeserving people and graciously redeeming them from their slavery out of his sheer mercy, and then, and then he gives them the law. Grace and redemption preceded the law. So these Ten Commandments, what are they for? Well, they are meant to reveal to Israel what a redeemed life looks like in relationship with the Lord their God. The Ten Commandments are a blessing, not a burden. So this morning, like I said, we're only going to cover the first four. Uh, The first four are sometimes called the first table of the law. They are uh, focused more on how we treat God. They're vertical in their orientation. Uh, The second table of the law, which we're going to reserve for next week, that's um, uh, commandments 5 to 10, uh, focus more on how we treat each other. They're horizontal in orientation. They have a distinct social dimension to them, and we'll see that next week. But this morning, uh, I'm going to focus my attention on how these first four commandments are true blessings to be received by faith and obedience, and not burdens to bear by sheer grit and determination. So if you want to follow along, just look in your uh, bulletin as an outline. It's just a very simple thing. Just kind of, we're going to walk straight through each of these four commandments. So let's begin by looking at the first one. After reminding his people of their covenant relationship, in verse 2, Reminding them of their recent redemption from Egypt, the Lord begins with a command calling for absolute allegiance from his people. He wants exclusive loyalty. Look again at verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, some commentators have noted that this first commandment 
doesn't lay out an explicitly monotheistic claim that, that Yahweh is the only God and that all other gods are false and non-existent. It's, it's not making that claim explicitly. That phrase before me could be taken as saying that you shall have no other gods in preference over me. And you know that, that observation is probably right at this point. Um, while this verse is not, a, 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 it, it's not affirming the existence of all the various gods of Egypt or of, of the Canaanites, but it is true that Moses here is not explicit about Yahweh being the one and only God. He really doesn't uh, emphasize that until later on in the book of Deuteronomy. You look in chapter 4, verse 35, um, and, and, and verse 39, and those are more explicit claims there. But without question, the first commandment is demanding from God's people exclusive and absolute covenant allegiance to the Lord God alone. And Pastor Fred mentioned last week that many scholars have noted a similarity between the Mosaic Law and ancient Near Eastern treaties, in particular, one that is known as the Suzerain-Vassal Treaty. Suzerain is spelled S-U-Z-E-R-A-I-N, uh, vassal, V-A-S-S-A-L, Suzerain-Vassal Treaty. A suzerain, if you're not familiar with that term, uh, was essentially a conquering king who would establish a treaty with a conquered people, the vassals. And so this type of treaty, this type of covenant, would lay out all of the stipulations of what this life is now going to look like for these vassals to live under the reign of their new king. And like we noted earlier, the key here is that the covenant relationship is already established before the stipulations are given. The relationship is there before the giving of the law. The law or the treaty is meant to now describe how to live in this relationship. And a common feature that would headline these suzerain-vassal treaties is some line calling for exclusive allegiance, and then the rest of the document would spell out what that means, spell out what does that exclusive allegiance look like in your life. So if you think about it, this suzerain-vassal relationship is a very fitting description for God's relationship with his redeemed people. Because whether you're dealing with Israel or if you're dealing with the church today, God, if you think about it, has conquered his people, not with the sword, but with his sovereign love. Right? He, he has won us over. He has defeated our resistance. He has captured us by his grace. And now, as our suzerain, our Lord, our King has every right to demand absolute and exclusive allegiance from us. So in other words, we shall not worship any other gods. We must not give our worship, we must not give our allegiance to idols. This concern here in the first commandment is a concern for idolatry. That's because idolatry is the fundamental problem behind lawbreaking. Say that again. Idolatry is the fundamental problem behind lawbreaking, while the worship of God alone is the fundamental solution for law-keeping. Tim Keller has been a helpful guide for understanding how all forms of law-breaking are ultimately 
related to idol worship. His book, Counterfeit Gods, is a really good book. He makes this point here. I mean, actually, really, uh, in the book, he's just kind of unpacking what Martin Luther had already been writing about 500 years earlier. Uh, Luther had, had taught that any violation of commandments 2 through 10 include a violation of the first commandment. You, you don't break the rest without breaking the first and the reason is because any form of law-breaking, any form of sin, is fundamentally a form of idol worship. Maybe you're not bowing down to a literal idol made of wood or stone, but you are bowing down to some functional God, trusting it to give to you what only the one true God can offer. It makes a total sense here, if you think about it. I mean, for example, why do we break the Eighth Commandment? You shall not steal. Like, why do, why do we cheat on our taxes? It's because money has become an idol. We trust in money to give us a sense of fulfillment or security more than we trust in God, who really is the one who offers those things. Why do we break the ninth commandment? You shall not bear false witness. Why do we lie in order to save face? Well, it's because the approval of man is more precious to us than the approval of God. We lie in order to construct a better image of ourselves because we worship the opinion of others more than we worship God. That's idolatry. That's putting another God before him. So this is how the first commandment is really a blessing to us. You shall have no other gods before me is not a demand made by an insecure, suspicious God who can't abide the thought of sharing us with other gods. No, friends, this command is coming from a God who sees his beloved people forsaking him, the fountain of living, life-giving water, only to see us crawl on our hands and knees to drink from broken cisterns containing brackish, muddy water, if any at all. I mean, that's exactly how the Lord describes our idolatry in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. That's what we're doing when we persistently turn to people, possessions, or pursuits in this world to satisfy our deepest longings. God knows, God knows they're going to fail. The idols will fail you. And so he commands you to give him and him alone your, your, your whole heart and soul and mind and strength because he loves you, because he wants to fill you with his living, life-giving water. Church, I hope you see he's trying to bless you through this first commandment. So what about the second commandment? How, how is the second different from the first? And how is it a blessing to us? Well, let's just read it again. Verse 4, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Let's stop there. Now, I think some, to some people that sounds a whole lot like the first commandment. I mean, doesn't that just simply mean don't worship idols, right? Isn't that the same thing? Well, not quite. If the first commandment is concerned with worshiping the right God, then the second commandment is concerned with worshiping the right God in the right way. 
So in, in, another way to put it is like this. If, if the first commandment is about who we worship, then the second commandment is about how we worship or more like how not to worship. We are not to make an image of God. When ancient people carved those idols out of wood or, or stone and they depicted them as these various creatures, they didn't actually think that the carved image was literally their God. You realize that, right? It, it was understood that this statue or this effigy was supposed to be an earthly representation of the God that they're trying to worship. It was such a common practice to make these effigies, to make these statues, um, that Israel had to be warned to not adopt that practice in their worship of Yahweh. Because to identify God with a particular created image is just one step away from regarding God mainly in terms of that particular image. But in so doing, his glory, well, as, his glory as you perceive it well, has now been diminished. In making an image of him, you have limited him in some way. You have belittled him. And that's the problem we're going to see later on in chapter 32, when the Israelites make an image of the Lord uh, in the form of a golden calf. No one actually thought the golden calf was literally Yahweh. No, what they were trying to do when they, when they built that thing was they were trying to convey something of God's majesty and might. And cows in those days were understood to symbolize strength. And if you make it out of shiny gold, well, then it's majestic strength. And so they're like, that's what we're trying to say about God. But even though it's true, the Lord is majestic and the Lord is mighty, that's not all he is. No one created image is going to cover it all, is going to suffice. One, no one created image is going to capture the infinite worth and perfection of the Lord. To try to capture the inexhaustible glory of God in one image is inevitably going to fail, and it's going to lead you to blasphemy. You'll end up with a false image of God. You'll end up with an idol. And God doesn't take too kindly to that. Look back at verse 5. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, I know some people are going to get tripped up by this description of God being jealous. Isn't that beneath God to be jealous? I mean, isn't he better than that? Well, look, there, there, there certainly are forms of jealousy that are childish, that are petty. But there's also a form of righteous jealousy that is rooted in a covenantal love. So imagine if, if I were to happen to overhear my wife telling a friend that she is so thankful to be in love with a godly man who's six foot two with blonde, wavy hair and bright blue eyes, you would think something would be wrong with me if I was like, well, at least you got the godly part right. You know, I mean, you would expect a husband is going to be jealous for his wife's affection. And if she says she loves you and you alone, but her image of you sounds a whole lot like not you, then there's an obvious problem. 
And that's why God prohibits his people from constructing visual images of him. Now let me quickly address a question I know some of you might be wondering. What about Jesus? What about pictures of Jesus? I mean, is that permitted? Because he is God incarnate. Like he, he actually has a human face that could have been drawn or sculpted uh, during his days uh, on earth. Or, and throughout history, of course, there have been thousands of, t- of, of attempts to do so. I've got children's books at home. I've got tons of children's books with pictures of Jesus in them. What, what should I do? Should I just go home this afternoon and burn them all? Like, wh- how, wh- what do I do? Well, you know, I, I stand to be corrected, but... I don't think it's a violation of the second commandment for your kid to draw a picture of Jesus. I, I think because of the incarnation, it is in a different category. But in the end, in the end, parents should be teaching their kids to talk to Jesus more than to draw Jesus. And my issue with most, most pictures of Jesus is that he never really looks like a first century Palestinian Jew. He always looks more like a member of whatever culture the artist is coming from, right? And isn't that the problem, right? Whenever we try to make visual representations of God, it always turns out to be a picture of God made in our own image. I think that's the biggest danger that we face today. I I, I know that few of us are tempted to, to draw or to sculpt an image of God today, but we're all prone to forming self-made mental images of God that in the end are just reflections of ourselves. So if you ever find yourself wrestling to accept what a passage of Scripture is teaching because it just doesn't sit right with you, if you ever catch yourself saying, my God wouldn't do that, oh, my, my God wouldn't say that, well, then beware. Because it probably means you've constructed a self-made mental image of God that is ultimately just a reflection of yourself. And that's why the second commandment is such a blessing to God's people because it is meant to protect us against ourselves and our own tendency to create insufficient pictures of God made in our own image. You shall not make for yourself a carved image of God. Now let's turn our attention to the third commandment. What about this one? And how does it bless the people of God? Well, just look at verse 7. Let me read it. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. This commandment is concerned with honoring God and revering his name. As other translations put it, by not misusing his name. Now history History tells us that the ancient Jews were so concerned about violating this command that they refrained from using God's name altogether. They just simply referred to him as the name. They never used the name that he revealed to them. But the third commandment, if you notice, is not forbidding the use of God's name, but the misuse. God is not against using his name. He intentionally revealed his name to his people back in Exodus chapter 3. He is Yahweh. He's the great I Am. That divine name is used almost 7,000 times in the Old Testament. It's, It's often translated as Lord in small caps in your English translation. 
So God actually wants his people to know his name and to address him by his name. It is a name that is supposed to reinforce that special covenantal bond that they have with God. So what this command forbids is the misuse of that sacred name. Taking it in vain means to treat God's name flippantly, as if it meant nothing, as if it were insignificant. And in biblical times, you have to remember that a person's name stood to represent the person as a whole. And so when you're dealing with God, I mean, we're talking about the, 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 great, the one of greatest worth in all of creation, to treat his name carelessly as if it were worthless would be profanity in the truest sense of the word. Now, for the longest time, I assumed that the third commandment was about not using God's name as part of a curse word or not using it as just some kind of exclamation when you're surprised. I thought it was about our speech, and it still is, but it's concerned with our behavior as well. You see, the word for taking the name could also be translated as bearing or carrying the name of God. And so it could read like this, you shall not bear the name of the Lord your God in vain. And so in Israel's case, there was no question that they're going to bear the name of the Lord among the nations that they're going to. But the question is, how are they going to bear it? What kind of witness are they going to give for the sake of the Lord? And so this commandment here, I hope you see, is, is not just about our speech, but it's also about our witness. Because just because we, we don't curse, and just because we are very careful not to carelessly throw around God's name, it doesn't mean that we perfectly kept this command. We really have to ask ourselves, what kind of impression of God do we give to the people in our lives who do not worship the Lord our God? By our speech and behavior, would they recognize God as a being of great value and worth? Maybe they're not ready to trust in him just yet, but do they at least acknowledge that the God that we worship is a God of love and justice? But by virtue of our witness, do they see him as a God who takes sin seriously, who does not turn a blind eye to evil or injustice, but who also offers true forgiveness to people at great cost to himself? Do we live in such a way that people see that about God? I think of the recent expose in the Houston Chronicle on a widespread negligence or even cover-up of sexual abuse allegations against children in Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches like ours. And I fear that collectively, collectively as the church, we have taken the name of the Lord in vain. We have carried his name in vain in the way that we have handled allegations of any sort of sin that would bring shame. I know we tell ourselves that we're trying to protect God's name from shame, but really we're often just trying to protect our own name, our church's name. What will truly honor God's name and demonstrate its significance is for the church to protect the weak, for the church to rise up and to help the helpless, all in the name of the Lord. 
And then let's show the world and show, his, show the world that God and God's people are committed to justice and righteousness and that we have the greatest news in all the world. I'm talking about news of how the Son of God was willing to come here to bear the shame of his own people, shamefully dying on the cross for our sins so that anyone Truly anyone who trusts in him can receive his grace. Grace to victims of sexual abuse in the form of healing, and even grace to perpetrators in the form of forgiveness. Now, they shouldn't be restored to the ministry because they are no longer qualified, but in the gospel, yes, forgiveness is available even to the chief of sinners. And this is why, friends, the third commandment is such a blessing because it is intended to preserve this glorious name and good news of the Lord, which is good news for all who believe. Lastly, let's consider this fourth commandment about the Sabbath. I I wish I had a whole sermon to unpack this one. I'm just going to make a few observations here. The fourth commandment says in verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Now, when it says remember the Sabbath, it's not just about like recalling it in your head. Like, like there's an implied expectation for demonstrable action. It's just like how a husband told to remember his wedding anniversary, you know, it's not enough for him just to be like, okay, got it. Yep, there in the head. No, there is like an implied expectation of demonstrable action. Flowers, maybe, dinner. You got to do something. You don't just think about it in your head. So that's why it says to remember the Sabbath day by, here's the action, keeping it holy. That means treating it as holy, as set apart, as different from all the other days of the week. In verses 9 to 10, it says God's people can keep the Sabbath holy by working on the other six days, but refraining from work on the seventh day of the week on Saturday. That's, that's the, the Sabbath, uh, according to the Old Testament. Now, there's also a social dimension to this commandment that is introduced into this first table of law, because it says you're not supposed to give any Uh, You're also supposed to give your servants in your household and even your animals a chance to rest on the Sabbath. And in verse 11, the reason for the Sabbath is rooted in the pattern of creation where God made the world in six days and then he rested on the seventh. And so if you notice here, the keeping the Sabbath holy, in, in keeping the Sabbath holy, we're not just following God's commands, we're actually following God's lead, right? And, And what proves that that this kind of six plus one rhythm of life is established for us in the very created order. And it's not just something that's instituted in the Mosaic law. What, what proves this is what we saw back earlier when we looked at chapter 16. And when we saw that resting from collecting manna on the Sabbath was understood by the people even before they got the law. And so the Sabbath practice was somehow connected with just the created order itself. Now, as many of you know, the Israelites were extremely cautious not to violate this command. So what they did is they tried to narrowly define what constituted work, and they created all these additional rules and regulations to prevent anyone from possibly even considering to violate 
the Sabbath. So by the time of Jesus, the Pharisees imposed the practice of the Sabbath that had become a burden on God's people. They completely lost sight of how the fourth commandment was supposed to be a blessing. And so Jesus had to correct them. He had to remind them that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The command to remember the Sabbath and to rest from your labor on that day was given for our good. As creator, God knows that we're made in his image, and he knows that we have this six plus one rhythm built into us, and so that we flourish the most when we respect that rhythm of life. If we disregard a Sabbath rest by overworking and overexerting ourselves, we not only reject the way in which we are designed to flourish, we also communicate that we don't really trust God. We don't really need God. And this is why keeping the Sabbath holy was so important for Israel and was such a blessing for those who remembered it. But of course, of course, the big question is whether or not the fourth commandment is still applicable now that we are the New Testament people of God. The big question is, is the Sabbath still required for Christians? I know that's a sticky subject that could take an entire sermon, probably an entire sermon series to fully explain. So I'm just going to give you my take and give you some biblical reasons behind it, but I know there's so much more that could be said. For me, I am comfortable speaking of the Sabbath as a sign of the Mosaic Covenant, much like the way that circumcision was a sign of the covenant that was made with Abraham. I see that language being used in Exodus 31, and in, uh, verse 13, and Ezekiel um, chapter 20, verse 12, the Sabbath is a sign of the Mosaic Covenant. And as a sign, the Sabbath pointed backwards to the rest that God had accomplished for Israel in the Exodus. And at the same time, as a sign, it pointed forwards to the future rest to come through Christ Jesus, who would secure an even greater Exodus. And so with the coming of Christ, now that he has accomplished his great exodus in his life, death, and resurrection, these old covenant signs like circumcision and the Sabbath have been fulfilled. And that's why Paul can speak of the Sabbath as one of the many things that were merely shadows pointing to the substance which is Christ. So listen to Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 to 17. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So the Sabbath was a shadow of a reality fulfilled in Christ. The substance belongs to Christ. That's why I can't go so far as to say the Sabbath regulation is still in effect today. I know some would call Sunday the Christian Sabbath, and some would insist that the whole day should be dedicated to worship and rest, and that believers shouldn't work, and they shouldn't employ others to work, and so that means you shouldn't go out to eat and, things, and go shopping and things like that. I wouldn't go so far to say that because the New Testament never specifies a particular day of the week to rest from our labor. Keep in mind that even Sunday, 
the day that the early Christians chose to corporately gather for worship in commemoration of their Lord's resurrection on the first day of the week. Even Sunday for them was still a work day in ancient times. Christians couldn't just take Sundays off from work. They were expected to go to work like everyone else. They likely had to worship very early on the first day of the week before their work day began. And so I would respectfully disagree with those who believe that a Christian Sabbath on Sundays is required for believers as a matter of law. I would leave it as a matter of Christian conscience, which, by the way, we're going to have a whole series on the conscience later this summer. So I'm excited to get into that, addressing similar type of issues. But having said that, having said that, I can't ignore how in verse 11, as I pointed out to you earlier, the Sabbath is rooted in the creation order. And so that's why I do sympathize with those who argue that Christians today are way too dismissive of the principles that are underlying the observance of a weekly Sabbath. I think we should still respect this six plus one Sabbath rhythm and set apart time in the busyness of our work week to rest and, and to worship with the people of God. So for all Christians, this means prioritizing the weekly assembly of God's people around the preaching of the word and the practice of the ordinances. I think that's the closest parallel that we have to Old Testament worship, what we are doing right now, this very moment. But we don't apply the same degree of strictness as in the Old Covenant. So we recognize that for some believers, their work requires them to occasionally work on Sundays. We don't treat them as lawbreakers. But you have to be careful here, because if your career choices make it particularly difficult to rest from your labor and to regularly assemble to worship with the people of God, then you might be in danger of violating not the fourth commandment, but the first. You might be putting career before God. So whether you're working, whether you're still in school, whether you're retired, whether you're a homemaker who's raising kids, ask yourself this. What will a six plus one Sabbath rhythm look like for you? Do you take regular, intentional, weekly rests from your labor? If that's not a practice in your life, then I do urge you to consider adopting it. Not because you feel burdened by the heavy demands of the law, but because you recognize that a Sabbath rest is a blessing. Because you realize that God made you with a six plus one rhythm in your soul and that your joy and your productivity flourishes when you respect that rhythm. So friends, I, I hope you're starting to see I hope you're starting to see how the law of God is really an extension of the grace of God. The grace of God to you. It has been given to you to bless you. Father, help us to see this. Help us to love your law, to delight in your commandments. We want to resonate with the psalmist. We want to be able to praise you for the gospel and for the law, for the whole counsel of Scripture, because, Lord, it is all a blessing from your gracious, loving hands. We thank you, O oh Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.
Thank you, Pastor Jason. And um, as we respond in song, feel free to stand up and, and as we worship. Um, and just keep in mind um, just the thankfulness uh, that we should have and the gratitude for the law and for Jesus.